Have you ever done something incredible? Look at you, of course you have, you're great. You've probably done heaps of incredible things. Think about the most incredible thing you've done. Maybe you baked a really good apple pie. Maybe you climbed a mountain. Maybe you solved poverty and world hunger. Whatever it is, just pick out the greatest thing out of all the things that you've done. And now imagine, for that amazing thing you've done, the credit is given to somebody else. Your friend Jimmy was hanging out with you and watching while you did this incredible thing and now all the people around you start crediting Jimmy with your achievement. But let's take it one step further. Let's say that Jimmy eventually is given one of the highest honours and the most prestigious awards on earth, all for something that you did. Maybe Jimmy mentions you in his acceptance speech, but that doesn't help at all. That award should be yours. You can't even put this thing on your resume anymore because people at job interviews don't believe that you could do something like this, because this is Jimmy's thing. Eventually, years later, you and Jimmy both pass on. You're remembered by friends and family, at least for a little while. But Jimmy lives on in fame as textbooks credit your achievements to him, and academics for generations and generations live in admiration of Jimmy. This hypothetical scenario is not fiction. This is an experience faced to different levels every single day by woman. Year after year after year, accomplishments from women are attributed to men and remembered as achievements of men. This is injustice. Over the next two episodes, we're going to be looking at six women who broke new ground in science, had their achievements credited to men, and lost out their chance to receive a Nobel Prize. These are the Invisible Women of the Nobel Prize. Alfred Nobel was a Swedish scientist who lived from 1833 until 1896. He was an incredibly well-acclaimed scientist, achieving highly in both chemistry and engineering. Throughout his life, he gained fluency in six languages, filed 355 patents for his inventions, and amassed an impressive fortune with all of this, at least a couple of hundred million US dollars in today's currency. One of his more successful inventions, both in financial terms and contribution to humankind, was the explosive dynamite. I mention dynamite's contribution to humankind not due to its destructive nature or military application, but because of its use as a tool in industries such as construction, demolition, and mining. Dynamite is much safer to handle than its explosive derivative, nitroglycerin, and Alfred Nobel had been working hard to create this safer alternative after his younger brother had died in an explosion at a Swedish factory that prepared nitroglycerin. He'd go on to create more explosives, gelignite and ballastite. Despite the non-military applications of his inventions, he'd also go on to have 90 explosive and armament factories. And there was no arguing that his inventions, despite their intentions, were used in conflict and warfare. In 1988, Alfred Nobel lost another brother, Ludwig Nobel. Ludwig had been in France at the time of his death, and it seems that some French newspapers had met some confusion at the identity of which Nobel brother had died. Mistakenly thinking that it was Alfred Nobel who had died, one newspaper published an obituary targeted at him. The headline read, translated from French, The merchant of death is dead. A quote from the false obituary read, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Alfred Nobel had received a glimpse into the future. He'd seen what people would say about him after his death. He'd been shown his future legacy. And he was not content with going down in history as a war profiteer. So, he came up with his own ideas on how to better his legacy and signed away his last will and testament in 1895, shortly before his death in 1896. 
portions of his estate were granted to individuals, some went to taxes, but 94% of his substantial wealth was dedicated to the creation of the Nobel Prize. These are five distinct prizes which are given each year, in Nobel's words, to those who during the preceding year have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. The five prizes are given in the categories of chemistry, physics, literature, peace, and physiology or medicine. In 1901, the first Nobel Prizes were awarded, and over the years since, they have become one of, if not the, most prestigious prizes in the world for their respective categories. Like, let's be honest, you probably already know what a Nobel Prize is, right? If not, let's throw some names out there. Albert Einstein, Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, the Red Cross, Marie Curie, Barack Obama, the European Union, Winston Churchill, Bob Dylan. I'm sure that you know at least one of these people or organizations. These people are high profile, the best in their fields. 968 people or organizations have received Nobel Prizes. 25 have been organizations. 885 men have received Nobel Prizes. Only 58 women have received a Nobel Prize. It's been 120 years, and there have only been 58 women who have received one. 16.5% of Nobel Peace Prizes have been awarded to women. The Nobel Prize in Literature, 13.6% have been awarded to women. For the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, 5.4% have been awarded to women. The Nobel Prize in Chemistry, 3.7% have been awarded to women. Only 1.8% of Nobel Prizes in Physics have been awarded to women. That's four. That's four women. In 120 years, that's only four women. In 1861, Nettie Stevens was born in Cavendish, Vermont. She'd grow up to become an incredible scientist, a pioneer in studies on genetics. She'd never become one of the 58 women to receive a Nobel Prize, but her work would contribute to somebody else being awarded one. In 1905, Nettie Stevens was researching the sperm of mealworms when she noticed that there were two different kinds of sperm. The chromosomes of these two types of sperm were different. A chromosome is a big long DNA molecule. Think of it like a tiny microscopic package that genetic material is stored in. One type of sperm had a large chromosome, and the other type had a small chromosome. Nettie Stevens, at the time, could have no idea how her observations would go on to influence our understanding of genetics, biology, biochemistry, and evolution. Shortly after Stevens was born, her mother passed away. She was raised by her father and her stepmother. Between the years of 1872 and 1883, Nettie Stevens was one of the only three women to graduate from Westford Academy, one of the oldest high schools in the United States of America, found in Westford, Massachusetts. One of the other two women was her sister. Graduating in 1880, Nettie Stevens was a student with an affinity for debate playing piano, and academic study. After graduation, she became a teacher at a high school in New Hampshire with a pretty extensive list of classes. She was teaching Latin, maths, English, physiology, and zoology. She taught for about three years before heading off to Stanford University, where she completed a four-year degree in just half that time. She scooped up her bachelor's and then moved on to her master's. Her speciality was cell biology, and one of her interests was the development of gametes. That's a fancy science word for sperm and eggs. In 1900, Stevens was accepted into the PhD program at Bryn Mawr College. This was a Pennsylvania women's college, one of the first to offer courses for graduates. For Stevens, this was a great choice of school with some of the faculty being especially notable figures in the field of cell biology or cytology. 
In her second year of her PhD, she headed off to Europe. She had received a fellowship that allowed her to research in both Italy and Germany. She firstly spent some time at the Zoological Station in Naples, Italy, before heading to the Zoological Institute at the University of Würzburg, Germany. She returned to the United States after a year abroad, and Thomas Hunt Morgan was assigned as her PhD supervisor. He's a bit of a legend in the field of genetics and evolutionary biology. Grab a biology, genetics, or cell biology textbook, and you're sure to find his name in there. Nettie Stevens completed her PhD in 1903. Alongside studying the development of sperm and eggs, she also researched cell division, regeneration in multicellular organisms, and the structure of single-celled organisms. She had already published nine scientific papers by this time. That's a lot. She found herself receiving many awards and prizes for her scientific achievements and was given a postdoctoral research position at Bryn Mawr College following the completion of her PhD. Thomas Hunt Morgan was now a colleague, rather than an advisor. Edmund Wilson at Columbia University was now another reputable scientist that was a colleague of hers. A lot of her PhD work was actually influenced by earlier research from Wilson. By now, Nettie Stevens had become interested in sex determination. What happens in development that makes us born with either male or female genitalia? She wanted to investigate the genetic components to this. Thomas Morgan, who held the higher position amongst the team, supported her grant applications while also making clear that he didn't really think that genetics had anything to do with sex determination. Nettie applied for a grant from the Carnegie Institution in Washington, where she indicated she wanted to research the, quote, histological side of the problems in heredity connected with Mendel's laws. Mendel's laws of inheritance are to do with the basis of how traits are passed from one generation to the next. Nettie Stevens wanted to figure out the mechanism behind the passing on of certain traits, and particularly sex determination. Her application was successful. She was given a research assistantship and could remain at Bryn Mawr College to investigate heredity. One of her first studies with this grant looked at aphids, and she quickly was becoming more and more convinced that her ideas on genetic sex determination were correct, but she wasn't quite there yet. Quote, The evidence is overwhelmingly on the side of the view that sex is determined in the egg, but to the question how sex is determined in the egg, no thoroughly convincing answer has yet been given. Then along came her mealworm study that we already briefly mentioned. Those two different kinds of mealworm sperm, one with a short chromosome, the other with a large chromosome. That might be a little bit of an oversimplification. Those chromosomes, those big long units made up of DNA, are usually found in pairs. In humans, we usually have 23 pairs of chromosomes. These mealworms that Stevens was looking at each had 10 pairs, for a total of 20 chromosomes. An individual sperm, or an individual egg, only has one representative of each pair. That means each individual mealworm sperm and each individual mealworm egg holds a grand total of 10 chromosomes. When the egg is fertilized by the sperm, they each provide half of the genetic material that will then go on to grow up into the happy little mealworm. So back to those little mealworm sperms. One type had 10 large chromosomes, and the other had 9 large chromosomes, and one small chromosome. Hmm. Suspicious. Stevens then looked at the genetic makeup of the adult mealworms. Female mealworms had 20 large chromosomes. Male mealworms had 19 large chromosomes, and one small one. That pair, where one chromosome is either large or small, would become known as the sex chromosomes. The large chromosome is the X chromosome, the small one is the Y chromosome. The eggs only ever have X chromosomes, the large ones. The sperm could have either X or Y chromosomes. If a sperm carrying an X chromosome fertilizes the egg, then that fertilized egg has two X chromosomes and would develop as a female. If the sperm carrying a Y chromosome fertilizes the egg, 
then the fertilized egg would have one X and one Y chromosome developing as a male. This was the genetic basis for sex determination and Nettie Stevens had discovered it. I'll put in a little disclaimer here, you will find examples of species where sex is determined in a different manner, with different genetic or environmental factors, but sex determination with X and Y chromosomes is found in most mammals, including humans and some insects. This work would break the ground needed for future research on sex determination, but also on genetics in general. Her discovery would later be described by historian Stephen Brush as, quote, the culmination of more than 2,000 years of speculation and experiment on how an animal, plant or human becomes male or female. At the same time, it provided an important confirmation for the recently revived Mendelian genetics that was to become a central part of modern biology. Nettie Stevens' colleague, Edmund Wilson, had published similar research at the same time and came to pretty much the same conclusions as Nettie Stevens, so in the end they both took a share of the credit. But it didn't actually work out like that, did it? Edmund Wilson was given the lion's share of the credit, and his published work is often cited as the discovery of sex chromosomes. But here's the kicker. Edmund Wilson had not come to the same conclusions as Nettie Stevens until he had seen her results. Being both a scientist of higher reputation and a man, his research was fast-tracked through the publishing process, which meant that he could submit his research after Stevens, have it published before her, and then go down in history as the legend who discovered sex chromosomes. Despite his credit at the time, Wilson wasn't too hardcore on board with genetic sex determination and still believed that there were some environmental factors on this. Nettie Stevens was all aboard. Maybe because it was her research showing it. Nettie Stevens lost out on credit, reward and reputation. Thomas Hunt Morgan, the scientist out of them with the most esteem and reputation, even argued against these initial findings. Sadly, on May 4th, 1912, Nettie Stevens passed away from breast cancer at age 50. Thomas Hunt Morgan penned an obituary to be published in the scientific journal, Science. Here's a couple of direct quotes from that obituary. Quote, Miss Stevens had a share in a discovery of importance. Quote, her contributions are models of brevity, a brevity amounting at times almost to meagerness. He wrote that in her obituary. Nettie Stevens' discovery of the role of sex chromosomes had contradicted an earlier hypothesis by Clarence McLung, but Thomas Morgan in Stevens' obituary also incorrectly stated that McClung was actually the one who had figured out the proper role of sex chromosomes and that Stevens was, quote, among the first to establish the correctness of this hypothesis. In 1933, Thomas Hunt Morgan won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for, quote, his discoveries concerning the role played by the chromosome in hereditary. Thomas Hunt Morgan had, after downplaying the discoveries of Nettie Stevens, used her research as a foundation for more research that eventually won him the Nobel Prize. Remember what he said about her contributions. Models of brevity. A brevity amounting at times almost to meagerness. Nobel Prizes are not generally awarded posthumously, so it's not like this prize could have gone to her instead two decades after her passing. But you'd hope that Thomas Hunt Morgan could, at the very least, credit the person whose research led to this prize. You'd hope. Some textbooks and sources will still, to this day, credit the discovery of sex chromosomes to Thomas Hunt Morgan, including his own textbook. In 1915, just three years after Nettie Stevens' death, Thomas Hunt Morgan had published The Mechanisms of Genetics. Not only was Nettie Stevens not credited for any of her discoveries, he had published her research immediately after some of his, which led to a heavy implication that her discoveries, although anonymous in the textbook, 
were dependent on those that he had made in the years following. Nettie Stevens broke new ground in genetics and biology and she deserves the recognition for it. But both Thomas Hunt Morgan and the Nobel Committee refused to give it to her. Let's go back in time a little bit. November 7th, 1878. Vienna, Austria-Hungary. Lisa Meitner is born into a family of Jewish descent, the third out of what would eventually be eight children. Her father was a lawyer who encouraged all eight children to learn science. Her mother was a pianist who inspired a love of music in all her children. From childhood, Lisa Meitner had the mind of a scientist, investigating science and mathematics and keeping track of her observations in a notebook. She makes note of, as a child, seeing an oil slick in a puddle on the ground and curiously wondering why and how the oil slick created colours in the water. She vowed that if she worked hard enough, she would find the answers to this question and any questions she came across. She had a curious mind and a persevering spirit. Lisa Meitner was quiet and shy but came out of her shell around close friends. She was incredibly witty with a low-key sense of humour. She was intelligent and studious, a critical thinker with deep reasoning behind her actions. She was friendly, and despite her shyness, had no problems in forming friendships. She would eventually train to become a teacher, which was one of the few professions available to women at the time. Despite her interests in science and mathematics, university education was out of the question for her. At the time, in Vienna, women were legally not allowed to go to university and schooling ended for girls at age 14. She was rightly frustrated by the sexist education laws and the sexist views of the scientific community, noting one particularly misogynistic book by a physician titled The Physiological Feeble-Mindedness of Women. As one century ended and the next one begun, Times changed and women began to be accepted at Austrian universities. In 1901, Lisa Meitner enrolled at the University of Vienna after spending years studying hard for the entrance exams. She wanted to become a physicist at a time where many thought there wasn't much more to discover in the field of physics. From the president of the National Bureau of Standards in Germany, quote, Nothing else has to be done in physics than just make better measurements. While Nettie Stevens was observing sex chromosomes for the first time, Lisa Meitner was completing her PhD. In 1905, Lisa Meitner became the second woman in Vienna to achieve a doctoral degree in physics. Her thesis, titled Examinations of Maxwell's Formula, was accepted on November 28, 1905. She studied thermal conduction, optics, radioactivity, alpha particles, and conducted research that would one day contribute to the prediction of the nuclear atom. Within just a few years of graduating and armed with a PhD in physics, Meitner crossed the border into Germany and made her way into Berlin, to the province of what was at the time known as Prussia. Here she made her way to Friedrich Wilhelm University, which is now the Humboldt University of Berlin. She wanted to attend the lectures of Max Planck. He's a bit of a legend in the field of physics, his number one achievement being the discovery of quantum theory, which would eventually win him a Nobel Prize a few years down the track, as it turns out. As it also turns out, he was a huge sexist. Max Planck, quote, It cannot be emphasized enough that nature herself prescribed to the woman her functions as mother and housewife and that laws of nature cannot be ignored under any circumstances without grave danger. That's a bit dramatic there, Max, you misogynist. Max Planck did not allow women to attend his lectures, and he was openly against allowing women to go to university at all. But every now and then he would make an exception to his sexism. Lisa Meitner was an exception. She was so brilliant that even the openly sexist physicists had to admit it. While here attending the lectures of Max Planck, she was not in employment. 
So she spoke to some scientists around the university inquiring whether there was any opportunity for her to do some research. She was introduced to Otto Hahn, a German physicist who had spent some time studying in Canada. This time in Canada had made Hahn more casual and less formal than his German counterparts and Meitner noted that this made him seem approachable. This meeting would begin a long-standing collaboration between the two physicists. Hahn was also without employment. Both Meitner and Hahn were living off allowances from their parents to allow them to pursue research. They were given an old woodworking shop as a makeshift lab where they set up equipment to study alpha particles, beta particles and gamma rays. Hahn was also allocated some space in another researcher's laboratory. Meitner and Hahn were a good research team, often singing folk songs together in their lab. They were efficient workers too, and stopped wearing gloves in order to allow them to work faster, despite the constant small burns that get on their fingertips. From a quick glance, you'd think that they were in the exact same situation as one another, unemployed, working on their passion of physics research. But we've just got to look at their working conditions to see that things were very different for the two here. Han was a man. This meant two things. One, he didn't have to deal with sexism from the other scientists. And two, he didn't have to deal with institutionalized sexism from the university itself. In Prussia, women were still not allowed to enroll in university. With the exception of their makeshift lab in the woodworking shop, Meitner was not allowed to set foot in the university. This meant she had to use a special external entrance the makeshift lab had, and it meant that she couldn't use any of the space that had been allocated in the other researchers' laboratory that Hahn had access to. Sometimes, she'd hide underneath the seating in the lecture theatres so that she had the opportunity to listen to certain lectures. She wasn't even allowed to use the restrooms. Even if she was allowed into the rest of the building, there weren't any women's restrooms so she would have to leave her makeshift laboratory and wander to a restaurant down the road if she needed to use the restroom. One year after she arrived, Prussia changed their rules to allow women the opportunity to go to university, and Meitner was finally allowed to use the rest of the building, including the newly installed women's restrooms. She noted that the chemists weren't too happy about women being allowed into their boys club, so she found friendships with the physicists instead. Still, she dealt with constant sexism. When walking down the street with Hahn, university staff would greet Hahn and ignore Meitner. An editor once wrote to Meitner, addressing her as Mr. Meitner, requesting to publish an article of hers. When finding out that she was a woman and not Mr. Meitner, he responded that he would never even consider publishing the work of a woman. Ernest Rutherford, a famous and prominent physicist from New Zealand, visited Berlin and upon meeting Meitner exclaimed his surprise that she was a woman. She was then excluded from the conversations between Rutherford, Hahn and the other physicists and she was instead expected to go shopping with Rutherford's wife. In the year 1912, both Hahn and Meitner were moved to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Chemistry, an independent research institute operating alongside the university. Hahn was offered a job here. Meitner was not. Otto Hahn was to be in charge of the radiochemistry lab, given the title of professor and a sweet salary of 5,000 marks per year. Meitner continued working unpaid for a while, but financial troubles related to the death of her father a few years earlier had her thinking that she might have to head back to Vienna. To keep her in Berlin, Max Planck gave her a job as an assistant. She was to be marking students' papers. But it wouldn't last for long. In 1913, she was up for promotion. She was given the same rank as Otto Hahn, and his radiochemistry lab became the Hahn Meitner Laboratory. Remember, his starting pay was 5,000 marks. She was being paid 1,500. In 1914, Meitner was given a generous job offer in Prague, so to keep her on, her salary was doubled to 3,000 marks. Remember, Hahn's starting pay was 5,000 marks. World War I struck in 1915 and both Hahn and Meitner were called up for service. 
Han had active duty and Meitner was trained as an X-ray technician. She was deployed with the Austrian army on both the Eastern Front and the Italian Front before returning back to Berlin in 1917. Her pay was increased to 4,000 marks. Remember, Han's starting pay was 5,000 marks. The Han Meitner laboratory was split into two labs as their research prestige grew and grew. Lisa Meitner worked on isotopes, X-ray spectroscopy, beta ray spectra, and many other areas of physics. The years went by. She still had to struggle with both casual and institutionalized sexism. She had not worked in direct collaboration with Han since before World War I, but now, at least in the eyes of the academic world of physics, her research was starting to outshine his. They remained close friends and loved to joke around with each other. In German, adding the suffix chen to the end of a word describes it as a smaller and often cuter version of itself. For example, bread is brot, but bread rolls are brötchen. Meitner would often, in public, jokingly refer to Hahn as Hähnchen, sometimes saying, quote, Be quiet, Hähnchen. You don't understand physics. Hähnchen is also a word that can mean little chicken. Meitner's shyness faded as she gained higher positions at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. She liked rules and she was not afraid to enforce them. All of a sudden, it was 1933. The year that Thomas Hunt Morgan received his Nobel Prize and failed to credit Nettie Stevens was the same year that Adolf Hitler became Germany's Chancellor. Within a few months, laws were passed banning all Jewish people from civil service. This included academics. Lisa Meitner was Germany's first female university physics professor. She had been Lutheran since 1908, but she had still been born to a Jewish family. She was dismissed from her professorship, but loopholes meant that she could keep doing her research and keep receiving her salary. This was mainly due to her holding an Austrian passport rather than a German one. Jewish scientists with German passports were not able to avoid these laws, and a number of her colleagues and collaborators lost their jobs to the anti-Semitic laws of the Nazi party. Quantum theory and relativity were banned topics in physics branded as Jewish physics. Meitner could not teach. She could not lecture. She could not publish. Hahn was not allowed to mention her name in any of his lectures, even when discussing her research. Meitner was frustrated with the lack of speaking out from non-Jewish academics. She said to Hahn, quote, As long as it's only us who are having the sleepless nights, and not you, it will not be any better in Germany. Lisa Meitner had five more years. Five years with more research, but no teaching, no publishing, and no Jewish physics. Then, the Anschluss happened. Der Anschluss was the German annexing of Austria. Austria was now a part of Germany. Lisa Meitner had just lost her Austrian citizenship, the only thing keeping her position at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute safe. Nazis at the Institute were recorded saying, quote, The Jew S endangers the Institute. She must go. Lisa Meitner began to look for ways to flee Germany. She had a scientific reputation now, despite the sexism in the field, so there were job offers out there for her. One came from Denmark. An interesting proposition invited her to an all-expenses-paid congress in Switzerland. After some deliberation, she decided on Denmark. She would become a lecturer in Copenhagen. Lisa Meitner travelled to the Danish consulate in Berlin, where she was seeking to get a visa that would allow her to travel to Denmark. The consulate refused to accept her Austrian passport, as it was now invalid. Lisa Meitner was unable to leave to Denmark. It wasn't long until she was offered another job, this one in Sweden. She quickly accepted it, but within a week of accepting, Germany stopped allowing academics to leave the country. Lisa Meitner would have to escape. In 
the plan was hatched. The key players, other than Lisa Meitner herself, were Otto Hahn and Dirk Koster, a Dutch scientist whom Meitner had known for nearly 20 years, meeting him while working on X-ray spectroscopy. July 11th, 1938. Dirk Koster left the Netherlands and arrived in Berlin. July 12, 1938. Lisa Meitner rises early and heads into work, just like a normal day, but maybe a little bit earlier than usual. She does nothing that could arouse any suspicions. Han filled her in on what the exact plan was, how they were going to get her out of this country and away from the Nazis. They went about their business doing physics research. Meitner stayed until 8pm, which was not unusual for her. But instead of returning back to her house after work, she went to Hans. With her she only had two suitcases, small ones, she was travelling light. In her purse was 10 marks. This would be no more than one or two hundred US dollars today. She had some summer clothes in her suitcases, and that was it. Everything else had to be left behind. Han also gave her a diamond ring. His mother had left it to him, but now he gave it to Meitner. If there was an emergency, maybe she could use it to bribe border police. She stayed the night at Han's place, preparing for the escape the next day. July 13, 1938. Dirk Koster sat at the Berlin train station minding his own business. He looked around and suddenly saw a familiar face walking towards him. It's Lisa Meitner. He'd come to Germany to help her escape, but for now they acted as if this was an unplanned meeting. Just two researchers running into each other talking about physics. They could not do anything that would make police or border guards suspicious. While talking, they boarded a train to Bad Neuverschans, a small town on the Dutch side of the Germany-Netherlands border. A train service that was not too busy, so there were fewer prying eyes. A small train station, unstaffed. It seemed the perfect escape. Koster had paperwork from a Dutch university that they could use if the Dutch border guards were skeptical. He'd also talked to a politician friend of his who had passed on the message directly to the Dutch border guards that they were to allow safe passage to Lisa Meitner. Each time the train stopped, Nazi guards boarded and checked the identity papers of the passengers. Some were forcibly removed. One Nazi studied Meitner's passport for 10 minutes. Meitner was terrified. She sat there still. The guards studied her passport. Then, he handed it back. Perhaps the German border guards assumed that Meitner was the wife of Koster, who would of course be allowed to go back to his own country of the Netherlands. They let Meitner and Koster leave Germany. Likewise, there were no troubles on the Netherlands side of the border. Lisa Meitner had officially escaped Nazi Germany. She made her way to Sweden, and as Christmas drew closer, the discovery of a lifetime was just around the corner. We'll come back to Lisa Meitner. Her story is not over yet. But for now, let's head back in time. Back to the same year that Meitner and Hans started at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Chemistry. Two weeks after the death of Nitti Stevens, on May 31st, 1912, Chen Xiongwu was born in the Jiangsu province of China. She had incredibly supportive parents. Her mother was a teacher, and her father was an engineer. Both were feminists and valued education and equality for women. Her father, Wu Chongyi, had been an activist during the Qinghai Revolution of 1911, which replaced the last dynasty with the Republic of China. 
While part of a group of rebels, he had sought out girls to join a school that he founded, Ming Dare School, to ensure that young girls, no matter the income of their families, could still access a quality education. Wu Chongyi, quote, I want every girl to have a school to go to. This is where Qian Xiong Wu would go to school for her early education before leaving for boarding school at age 10. She was a curious child, but preferred staying inside to playing outside. She'd listen to the radio, read poetry, and also enjoyed books on democracy. Rather than reading her children's books, Wu Chongyi would read her scientific articles. She also had an affinity for Chinese calligraphy. Her boarding school offered options for both conventional high school and also a pathway for teacher training. She chose the teacher training pathway, but soon realized that the conventional academic pathway was teaching more maths and science than she was being taught. So, she borrowed books from the other students and taught maths and science to herself. She led her high school's chapter of the Chinese underground student movement, with the other students reasoning that she should be the leader because the school would not dare expel her due to her perfect academic record. In 1929, she graduated at the top of her class. Although she was accepted into National Central University in Nanjing, she first had to teach for a year, as were the regulations with her teacher training pathway. She moved to Shanghai to teach at a public school and prepared for university. She felt that her education at boarding school was lacking in a few areas, so she spent a summer focusing on self-directed study. She went through textbook after textbook, studying geometry, algebra, and trigonometry, and entered university in 1930, majoring in mathematics. At university, she was brilliant. At one stage, a group of professors all gathered to brag about the best student in each of their classes, only to find that they were all actually talking about Qian Xiong Wu. Over the course of her four-year undergraduate degree, she would switch her major to physics. Finishing her undergraduate degree in physics, she moved on to some postgraduate study in further physics research, where she met her supervisor, Gu Jingwei. As well as advising her research, Gu Jingwei was a role model to Wu in other areas. Gu was a female physicist and not only helped Wu gain more confidence in herself, but also suggested that she should consider undertaking further education abroad, specifically in the USA at the University of Michigan, where Gu herself had received her PhD. Wu took this advice on board and decided to go through with it. In August 1936, at 24 years of age, Qian Shung Wu stepped aboard the SS President Hoover, bound for San Francisco. As she boarded the ship, she waved goodbye to her parents. She would never see them again. One of the first things Wu would come to experience in the USA was sexism. She was shocked that at the University of Michigan, women were not allowed inside the main student union building. When arriving in the country, she'd visited the University of California in Berkeley and immediately found herself drawn to Berkeley rather than Michigan. Berkeley seemed a bit more forward-thinking and a bit less bigoted. She met with the head of the physics department in Berkeley and was offered a spot. She cancelled on Michigan and accepted entry in Berkeley. She settled in here, made a nice group of friends, and even found a favourite restaurant where she had access to the Chinese cuisine she missed from home. She befriended the establishment, the tea garden, to the extent that she would get free meals and off-menu dishes prepared for her and her friends. She would miss out on a PhD scholarship likely due to the racism against Asians from the departmental head of physics. Wu was denied a scholarship in place of a readership, which still helped out financially, albeit at a significantly lower financial level than what was given to the other students. Wu found support from her friends and the community in 1937 when Japan invaded China, completely cutting Wu off from communication and financial support from her family. From the chairman of the physics department to Wu, quote, We are all very, very sorry, but you don't have to worry about yourself. We will take care of you now. She worked harder than ever. Wu, 
Quote, I have always felt that in physics, and probably in other endeavours too, you must have total commitment. It is not just a job, it is a way of life. Another graduate student would drive Wu home from the lab at 3 or 4 o'clock every morning, so that she didn't have to walk home alone in the dark. Wu was studying beta decay and impressed pretty much everyone with her extraordinary knowledge of physics and aptitude for research alongside a warm, confident and witty personality. While part of her thesis was on beta decay, the latter half was on radioactive isotopes that were produced by the nuclear fission of uranium. The year was 1940. Nuclear fission is a reaction involving the nucleus of an atom. Think of the nucleus as the body of the atom, the atom being the smallest possible measurement of matter of which everything that exists is composed. Nuclear fission is where the nucleus, this main body of the atom, splits into two or more nuclei, releasing large amounts of energy. And it was only a recent discovery. Let's go back to Europe. Lisa Meitner was safe in Sweden, having fled from Nazi Germany. Otto Hahn remained in Berlin, where he continued researching. Christmas was approaching. Alongside his assistant, Fritz Strassmann, Hahn ran an experiment. An experiment that had been prompted and designed by Lisa Meitner over the phone with Hahn after fleeing Germany. They took uranium and bombarded it with neutrons neutrally charged subatomic particles which are usually found living inside the nucleus. This produced barium, a completely different chemical element. This was very confusing, and they were not sure what was going on at all. So they wrote back to Meitner. Initially she was equally as confused, writing back, quote, At the moment the assumption of such a thoroughgoing breakup seems very difficult to me. But in nuclear physics we have experienced so many surprises that one cannot unconditionally say it is impossible. She was on Christmas vacation with her nephew and fellow physicist Otto Frisch. They were wandering through the woods on a snowy day shortly after hearing from Hahn and discussing the results. Frisch wore skis to help him wander over the deep snow. Meitner didn't bother, keeping up perfectly fine without them. They discussed the results, and then they discussed them some more. They took a seat on a log once the conversation reached a peak and started jotting down some notes. Meitner ran through some calculations and hypothesized on the method of how a uranium nucleus could divide when hit with a single neutron. She ran through some energy and atomic mass calculations on the spot and figured it out. Lisa Meitner and her nephew, while sitting in the snowy Sweden woods, had just interpreted Hahn and Strassmann's experiment to be results showing what would soon be known as nuclear fission. Sitting in the snowy Sweden woods, Meitner was correct. Frisch left Sweden after Christmas and headed down to Copenhagen, where he and Meitner worked together over the phone to run an experiment confirming their interpretation of Hahn's results. The results were confirmed. By February 1939, they were published. Otto Hahn, Lisa Meitner, Fritz Strassmann and Otto Frisch had discovered nuclear fission. This had many implications for physics, especially when the end of World War II approached and the US was working on its atomic weapons. And as the end of World War II approached, the Nobel Committee would come knocking. The 1944 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Otto Hahn for his discovery of the fission of heavy atomic nuclei. It was not announced until the following year, 1945, as Germans were not allowed to receive Nobel Prizes from 1936 until the end of World War II. The 1944 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Otto Hahn alone. Hahn did not publicly acknowledge Meitner's contributions. Without Lisa Meitner, nuclear fission would not have been discovered, but still she missed out on the Nobel Prize, which is often jointly given to collaborating scientists. 
Some of the Nobel Committee claimed that this was because they considered experimental physics over theoretical physics, which had been true in the past, but they had not done so for many years. Let's just say it how it is. The Guys Club gave the prize to the man because they didn't appreciate Meitner's contributions, which were undeniably crucial to the discovery. Lisa Meitner, quote, Surely Hahn fully deserved the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, there is really no doubt about it. But, I believe that Frisch and I contributed something not insignificant to the clarification of the process of uranium fission. How it originates and that it produces so much energy, and that was something very remote to Hahn. Basically, the team in Berlin and the team in Sweden contributed two different puzzle pieces to form the puzzle that was nuclear fission. The team in Berlin was led by a man, and the team in Sweden was led by a woman. The man received the credit. Throughout her life, Meitner would be nominated 19 times for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, and 29 times for the Nobel Prize in Physics. Nomination forms are sent out to leading academics in the different fields, who suggest their nominees and return the forms. A committee prepares a report on the nominees, which is given to a group of institutions for voting. The Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences, the Nobel Assembly at the Karolinska Institute, the Swedish Academy, and the Norwegian Nobel Committee. The winners are chosen by a vote and the majority wins. If the majority of voters consider the work of men to hold more weight than the work of women, then the man wins. The names of the unsuccessful nominees are sealed away only to be revealed 50 years later. Lisa Meitner would find that Sweden was not the friendliest place to be a refugee from Nazi Germany and struggled with being treated as an outsider by other academics. Over her life, she was not shy about hiding her own moral compass. She turned down an offer to work on the Manhattan Project, stating, quote, I will have nothing to do with a bomb. She was also disgusted with the behaviour of German academics under Nazi Germany, many of whom stayed at their posts throughout the rise of the Nazi Party, World War II, and the Holocaust. She held herself to these same standards, regretting remaining in the country for five years after the Nazi Party came into power. Quote, it was not only stupid, but very wrong that I did not leave at once. She wrote to Hahn in 1945, quote, You all worked for Nazi Germany, and you did not even try passive resistance. Granted, to absolve your conscience you helped some oppressed person here and there, but millions of innocent human beings were murdered, and there was no protest. Here in neutral Sweden, long before the end of the war, there was discussion of what should be done with German scholars once the war is over. What then must the English and Americans be thinking? I and many others are of the opinion that the one path for you would be to deliver an open statement and that you are aware that through your passivity you share responsibility for what has happened and that you have the need to work for what can be done to make amends. But many think it is too late for that. These people say that first you betrayed your friends, then your men and your children, and that you let them stake their lives on a criminal war, and finally that you betrayed Germany itself, because when the war was already quite hopeless, you never once spoke out against the meaningless destruction of Germany. That sounds pitiless, but nevertheless I believe that the reason I write this to you is true friendship. In the last few days, one had heard of the unbelievably gruesome things in the concentration camps. It overwhelms everything one previously feared. When I heard on English radio a very detailed report by the English and Americans about Belsen and Buchenwald, I began to cry out loud and lay awake all night. Lisa Meitner continued working as a physicist and researcher in Sweden until her retirement in 1960, when she moved to the United Kingdom. She visited Hahn in Germany frequently. The two remained good friends their entire lives. Despite their friendship, Meitner's contributions had started fading from memory. Not just in the case of nuclear fission, 
The renamed Kaiser Wilhelm Institute remembered Lisa Meitner as Otto Hahn's junior colleague. At the Deutsches Museum in Munich, her work equipment would be displayed until 1989 under the display name Otto Hahn's Work Table. In a letter from Meitner to Hahn, quote, Will my scientific past also be taken away from me? Otto Hahn passed away in July 1968. Lisa Meitner passed away in October that same year at the age of 89. Despite her lack of recognition by the Nobel Committee, she was still one of the physicists who had discovered nuclear fission and her discoveries would go on to inspire future scientists and provide a foundation for more and more discoveries, including discoveries by the physicist Qian Xiong Wu. Wu's PhD thesis was accepted in June 1940. It was elected to the prestigious US Academic Honor Society, Phi Beta Kappa. An article in a local newspaper referred to her as a, quote, petite Chinese girl. Focusing on her looks rather than her achievements, it also read, quote, Ms. Wu, or more appropriately, Dr. Wu, looks as though she might be an actress or an artist or a daughter of wealth in search of occidental culture. Despite sexism in the press, Wu was taken seriously by the physicists who saw how brilliant she was. She received multiple recommendations from highly reputable physicists, but couldn't manage to land herself a research position. She worked as an assistant professor at a private woman's college for a while, but longed for research. Out of the top 20 universities for research in the United States, exactly zero had a female professor. As well as sexism, Wu also dealt with racism. This was a time when Japanese people in the USA were put into what was effectively concentration camps. The anti-Asian sentiment was high, and the racist people didn't seem to care about the difference between Japan and China. In March 1944, she found a research position. She joined the Manhattan Project, a United States-led research and development project that created nuclear weapons the very first nuclear weapons. She was to live on campus at Columbia University, researching in their substitute alloy materials laboratories. She also landed herself a teaching job at Princeton University, where she would go on the weekends. Wu had an important role in the Manhattan Project when some issues arrived with B Reactor. This was the first ever nuclear reactor built on a large scale, but it was facing some issues with unpredictably turning on and off at random times. Scientists hypothesized the cause of the problem, and realized that it might be related to some of Wu's PhD research. She verified that the problems with B Reactor were due to a problem with a product of nuclear fission. Her research also assisted with fueling atomic weapons through creating enriched uranium. Like many of the Manhattan Project scientists, she was appalled at the destruction that nuclear weapons caused in Japan at the end of World War II and would openly speak out against the creation of more nuclear weapons. After the end of World War II, Wu had hoped to return to China to see her family again. These plans were thwarted by the Chinese Civil War and the subsequent rise of communism. Her father had written to her once communism had taken over, requesting that she did not return to communist China. She would officially become a US citizen in 1954. She was offered a position to stay on at Columbia University after World War II and spent years researching physics with topics such as quantum entanglement and beta decay further establishing her high reputation in the field. Wu would come to meet Chinese-born theoretical physicist Tsung Dao Li, Li, alongside theoretical physicist Chen Ning Yang, began to consider the law of the conservation of parity. This was a complex hypothetical physical law. Effectively, if the conservation of parity were true, a mirror image of our world would behave identically, with the exception of left and right being reversed in this mirror world. An example being, the hands of a clock would rotate clockwise in our world, and anti-clockwise in this hypothetical mirror world. If the hypothetical mirror clock still had hands rotating clockwise, 
then the law of conservation of parity would be violated. In experiments with strong physical interactions, data suggested that the law of conservation of parity was correct. Lee and Yang, the two theoretical physicists, concluded that data from weak physical interactions did not make the same suggestion, but it also didn't argue against the suggestion either. There would need to be more experiments. Chen Shun Wu was the woman to run this experiment. The Wu experiment was complex. She used a low temperature lab, cooling cobalt-60 atoms to near absolute zero. Absolute zero is negative 273 degrees Celsius or negative 459 degrees Fahrenheit. The coldest that things can be. She monitored the beta decay of these atoms and her results conclusively showed that the law of conservation of parity was incorrect. Parity conservation does not occur universally. This came as a big surprise to a lot of physicists, who were not expecting this at all. Some quickly tried to verify or refute her findings by running their own experiments, and some just straight up didn't believe it. From one physicist, quote, That's total nonsense. But no, it was not total nonsense. Further experiments verified Wu's results, which was known as parity violation, and it was groundbreaking. Imagine if you got in contact with an alien, living out on Jupiter or something. Their anatomy is completely different to ours. How would you be able to differentiate between left and right while speaking over the phone with them? Without making reference to a human body, we can't really communicate the exact meaning of left and right. Well, we couldn't. But the Wu experiment allowed for an exact operational definition of left and right. This had enormous implications within the field of physics. Otto Frisch, Lisa Meitner's nephew who had helped with the discovery of nuclear fission, referred to Wu's discovery as the most significant since the experiment that inspired Albert Einstein's theory of relativity. It allowed for distinctions between matter and antimatter, and even helps theorize how the universe came into existence. In 1957, Chen Ning Yang and Sung Dao Li were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for, quote, their penetrating investigation of the so-called parity laws, which has led to important discoveries regarding the elementary particles. Chen Shung Wu was not awarded a Nobel Prize for her role in this discovery. Yang and Li thanked Wu in their acceptance speeches and in subsequent years attempted to nominate her for the Nobel Prize, but the Nobel Committee did not give any recognition to Chen Shung Wu, despite at least seven further Nobel Prize nominations. Remember when Lisa Meitner was overlooked for the Nobel Prize that went to Otto Hahn? Remember how some of the Nobel Committee claimed that this was because they considered experimental physics over theoretical physics? This was just over 10 years later, and the exact opposite had happened. Lisa Meitner was a woman who contributed the theoretical groundwork to a discovery and was denied a Nobel Prize for it. Chen Shung Wu was a woman who contributed the experimental groundwork to a discovery and was denied a Nobel Prize for it. Any excuses trying to explain away the lack of recognition that these two incredible women had received from the Nobel Committee are not enough. It is sexism, plain and simple. The work of men being valued more than the work of women. Wu wrote in a letter to another scientist, quote, Although I did not do research just for the prize, it still hurts me a lot that my work was overlooked for certain reasons. She deserved better. Throughout the rest of her life, she continued to research and was rightfully held in high repute by the academic community. She also spoke out against sexism. While speaking against sexism at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, she said to the crowd, quote, I wonder whether the tiny atoms and nuclei, or the mathematical symbols, or the DNA molecules have any preference for either masculine or feminine treatment. She would also go on to say, quote, Men have always dominated the fields of science and technology. 
Look what an environmental mess we are in. On the amount of sexism she saw in the USA compared to China, she said, quote, In China, there are many, many women in physics. There is a misconception in America that women scientists are all dowdy spinsters. This is the fault of men. In Chinese society, a woman is valued for what she is, and men encourage her accomplishments, yet she remains eternally feminine. Wu would travel China, Taiwan and the United States promoting education in science, technology, engineering and mathematics. She wanted everybody to be able to access this education regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation or any other discriminatory factor. Just like how her father had founded Mingde School and ensured that girls received equal access to education during the Qinghai Revolution, Jian Shung Wu was a champion for removing barriers to education. Wu, quote, The main stumbling block in the way of any progress is and always has been unimpeachable tradition. In 1959, Wu's father passed away. In 1962, her mother passed away. She had been unable to return to China to see them since she had stepped on that ship back in 1936. She was denied permission to leave the United States and attend their funerals due to US travel restrictions to communist nations. She was only able to return to China again in 1973. Jian Shung Wu passed away on February 16, 1997 at age 84. Her ashes were returned to China and buried at Mingde School. The school her father had founded the school that started her education, and the school that inspired her to become one of the most wonderful scientific minds that has ever lived. The Invisible Woman of the Nobel Prize will be continued in part two.